Well, you may be seated. Um, before we go any further, I do want us to pray for Robert Cromie. Many of you know Robert. Um, Diego's stepdad, uh, Angelo, is, is not here this morning. Um, neither is uh, Yvette, his mom. And, and because Robert has come down with COVID, and Robert's younger than me. Robert's a lot younger than me. But you know what? This co he, He's in ICU right now. His oxygen level saturation has dipped tremendously low, um, and and we're praying that God is going to touch and heal him, okay? And, and I'm just going to take a moment right now, and I want you to agree with me in prayer. You, I, let's understand there is something very special when the people of God agree with one another in prayer. Understand that the Spirit of God lives in us, so God lives in us, but for some reason Jesus said where two or more are gathered, there I am in their midst. Okay, and when we agree together, God truly does something dynamic. That, that, that even as a pastor, I don't understand that dynamic. I just know it's true. So we're going to agree together right now that Robert would be healed. Amen, church. Uh, amen. So we're beginning this prayer with an amen. All right. So be it, Lord. We're coming boldly before your throne of mercy and grace, and we are asking for that mercy and grace to be poured out upon Robert. And I ask you, Lord, and we agree together that you would touch his body and that you would heal it, and that the very resurrection life of Jesus, whereby he was raised from the dead, you would raise this man up from his hospital bed, that, Father, all that is wrong with him, that you would write, you would correct, and you would heal in Jesus' name. Would you do this, Father, and would you bring glory and honor to your name? And would you lighten the hearts of those who right now are so grieved as he's laying in that hospital bed? Because, Jesus, you're on the throne, and we're appealing to you before that throne for healing on his behalf. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Awesome. I know all of us, at some point in our life, have had a test. You've sitting down, you've sat down, you've sitting, listen to my English. Yeah, y'all, you have sitting down, you sat down, and you have gone through this test, and I want you, have you ever taken like a 10-hour test? Oh, we're going to talk about a 10-day test this morning, but in this test, have you ever come across trick questions? And it's just, it's like one word that's slightly wrong. Like, how long did it take Moses to build the ark, guys? Do you remember? Thank you so much. See, that was a trick question. And if there's enough trick questions on the test, you begin wondering, is this professor wanting me to fail this test? Because honestly, some of these trick questions are hard. I remember a buddy of mine and I were in biology together. Uh, I love this guy. Uh, he had my back. I had his. And we both got this test question wrong. And we wanted to debate it with the professor. Okay, that we're in college, right? And so we go before the professor and we're saying, you know, this question can be taken this way or this way. And we argued our case pretty well to the point where he threw the question out. 
But there were a number of those questions, and we're just wondering, is the professor even for us? Is he wanting us to fail? Have you ever felt that way taking a test? I'm wondering if my professor is hoping that I'm going to fail this test. And can I just say, when Meredith was going through nursing school, I went to the University of Delaware. That's actually where we met. And she majored in nursing. I majored in psychology. Honestly, you can't compare the two. Hers was so much harder than my major. But in her tests, the professor arrange these tests, ask certain questions purposefully so that people would fail because they were wanting to weed out those who were not the elite. And they'll tell you in the very beginning, and I'm not sure of the exact figure, but like half of you guys are going to fail this course. And we're, in essence, we're going to see to it. But many of us, we've taken tests and we've wondered that. Right now, we are being tested, and as we read our passage in Revelation chapter 2, turn there with me if you would, 8 through 11, there's only four verses. Last week we looked at seven, that was a letter to Ephesus, this one's a letter to Smyrna. Polycarp actually was one of the main leaders in Smyrna before he died. Now he died, on a, he was burned at the stake in 155 A.D. So this is, that's much, at, much later after this letter, which was probably written around 95 AD. Regardless, you are being tested. And as we read this passage, Satan is the one who's administering the test. He's the proctor in the room, if you will. But we're going to discover some truths that though he is administering this test, Jesus is the one who is sovereign and overlooking it. And he is the one, I mean, the, you remember me saying, the best that Satan can do is play into the hands of God. That's the best that he can do. Now, it's up to us whether we remain faithful or not, okay? He is our source, he is our strength. But we're going to see some of these truths as they unfold. And I'm going to just let you know right now, we actually live in a day in which there is more persecution going on, persecution of Christians going on, martyrdom going on in our generation more than any other generation, more than when John was dictate, was, had this letter dictated to him by Jesus himself. There's more persecution of Christians. Now, Granted, the world's population is a lot larger, but as this letter is read, there are more who could listen to this and be encouraged by it than any other generation. I want you to be encouraged today. In America, our persecution looks different than those in Iran or Iraq or Afghanistan or in Somalia or in Nigeria. Our persecution just looks a little different. It may not be physically painful, but we are, things like cancel culture, things like, well, you cannot say that, and if you do, pastors, don't speak, don't speak negatively about the LGBTQ, because if you do, that is considered hate speech. You will incite others to murder them. Now, the truth is, there are wackos out there that could be incited to do anything. So our government, of course, is just saying, hey, uh, no guns, period, because some wackos are going to get a hold of guns, and, well, you know the story. So 
the truth is, though, that Satan is the proctor of this test that we are going through, that we're going to read about. But Jesus is the one who is supervising it. He's the principal, if you will, that is overseeing it. And there are some words of encouragement for those of us who are being persecuted. All right, I want to read this to you. Again, chapter 2, starting with verse 8. And I'm reading from the New International Version. It says, To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know. Remember, he walks among the lampstands, which represent the churches. That's why in just about every letter he begins it with, I know. Because he's right there in their midst. I know. He's amongst the lampstands. He's amongst us. He says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you. And you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So this challenge is not just to the church in Smyrna. Now he is saying this is also for all of you churches. To the, what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. Now, in review, we looked at this idea, why does Jesus write this letter to the angel of a city church? Now, understand, he is not writing this letter to local ch- to a local church because there would be many local churches in any given city, and especially by 95 AD. He is writing it to the city church, but that there is an angel, some have suggested would be a human messenger, because the word angelos means messenger. I, I would object to that only because we find nowhere in Scripture that there is a position in the church in which a man would oversee an entire city church. Now, it came eventually to be that Polycarp actually became the bishop or the overseer of the city church of Smyrna. But see, I don't believe, as as hard as you search through the scriptures, and I would submit this to you, there is not a biblical position for a man to oversee an entire city church, okay? The word overseer, the, the, the goal is that there are multiple overseers in a city. To the saints in Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, is how the, the, the Paul writes to the Philippi, to the letter to the Philippians in, in that city. Overseers is plural, not singular. So, if we understand this not to be a human, but actually a spirit being, an angel, we would also recognize that Michael, the archangel, was the prince of Israel. We don't know a lot about that except simply that the angel, Michael the archangel, had something to do with the protection of the nation of Israel. Angels are ministering spirits to the heirs of salvation. 
Hebrews 1 says. So all I'm going to say about this is, again, we begin a letter to the angel of the church at Smyrna. This letter is not written directly to that angel, but it is written to the people that I would say the angel, however God has commanded this angel to minister to any given local church, any given city church, the people of the Christians of that city, these words are addressed to them. They are for us as well. Now, if you were to look at the seven churches that these letters are written to on a map. Now, you can do that looking in the back of your Bible. Now, for me, it's pretty easy. I just look at the bottom of my page because as you can see here, I have a little map right at the bottom of my page here. You'll notice something interesting, not a big deal, but interesting. The, the letters are, that are written are arranged geographically like an upside down V. The first one is Ephesus, and like a V, it's down here. The last one is Laodicea. It's further east, but it, it looks like an upside-down V, just as far as the order in which he addresses the churches. But also note this, that the second church and the second to the last church, Philadelphia, are the only two churches in which there is strictly commendation. That is a sad fact. Why it's arranged purposely, the second and the second to the last. Maybe there's a reason, and I'm not seeing it, but that's the way it is. This letter is strictly commendation. There's no challenge. There's no charge. Yet I hold this against you, like we found to the letter in Ephesus. And the gospel, the teaching of the word of God, has such a rich history in Ephesus, you would think of any city, Paul was there for three years ministering to them, left Timothy there in the 60s to minister to them. Tradition says that John himself functioned apostolically in that city. That's where he, he dwelt. Now, we travel, but he dwelt there. There was so much rich teaching of the word, and yet we, they failed to apprehend and daily live in this passionate love relationship with Jesus, we discovered that they had actually become toxic. Not that they weren't Christians, but that they had become toxic. Now, that's frightening that as Christians, we can hold to the truth so strongly and adamantly that we can actually become toxic because we are emptied of the very purpose of that truth, to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. If you remove that from this equation, holding on to the truth becomes more of a hammer to hurt rather than salve to heal. That is the purpose of truth. It is not so that you are the best in Sunday school class and have all the answers. That is not the purpose for truth. So I want us to look at, at Sardis right now. Because for the Ephesians, remember what I said to you? Jesus said, I will remove your lampstand. I will remove the church. However he chooses, maybe he would allow persecution. Maybe he would allow people to say, hey, I just don't want to live in Ephesus anymore. I'm moving. And before you know it, there's no city church there anymore. If you go there during the height of the, I don't know if there are local churches there today. Um, 
I would imagine that there are probably one or two at least, but there was a time in which there were none. None. Under Islamic rule, zero. Jesus, in essence, was telling them because of their toxic Christianity, their absence was preferable to their presence. Wow. Mm. And for that reason, he says, repent and do the things you did at first that were filled with love and compassion and passion for Jesus and his fellow man. Sardis, and you may remember that the beginning of every letter, there is always one or two generally two, images or symbols that go back to chapter one. Look at the end of chapter, well, the last half of chapter one. John turns around when he hears Jesus' voice and he sees Jesus, but he doesn't see Jesus the way he saw him. Remember, John is the beloved. He saw Jesus in his earthly ministry. He didn't see Jesus like this in his earthly ministry. There are symbols that are used here to describe something about Jesus, maybe his purity or holiness, maybe his power, his sovereignty, whatever it would be. The beginning of every letter, he says, he, he starts it off with, these are the words of him who. These are the words of him who. And in this case, he's the first and the last. Look back, chapter 1, verse 17. And in Revelation 1:17, it says, when, when John saw him, he describes him, but then he kind of backs up a bit. Hey, guys, you know what? When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. He did not fall at his feet just simply because I, I want to worship him, but he fell at his feet though he was dead. Like Daniel in Daniel 10, all of his energy had left. The angel in Daniel 10 had to, the angel had to reach down and lift up Daniel and the, the strength of God had to flow into him just to stand up. Because he said, I can't. So, he, he is overwhelmed with this vision, with this vision, and let me just word it this way, of Jesus' glory. And he is undone. And he just unwillingly, it appears, falls down at his feet. And this is what Jesus then says. He says, I, excuse me, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. We also discovered that these two symbols that Jesus uses are not just irrelevant to the letter, but they are actually the key to understanding the letter. The focus then for this letter written to Smyrna is that he is the first and the last. He is the beginning of all things. He is the sum of all things. He was there. He existed before anything else. All else will continue on into eternity that, that, that's of a spiritual nature, humans, angels, and such. There's an eternity about it, but the things of this world, the, the physical things, including our bodies, will be destroyed. All of it will be destroyed, and then there will be a new heavens and a new earth 
on which only those who have been redeemed will walk in their resurrected bodies, renewed bodies. The old past, the new has come. And so here he is saying he is the sovereign one. I was there in the beginning and I created. I am there at the end when everything will be burned up and destroyed. And then I will recreate again. He is the sovereign one. That says, and and I've already read it, so he talks about Satan. So let me just say this. No matter what Satan thinks he is accomplishing, that he thinks is so tricky tricky and dastardly and going to undermine God's plan and purpose for his redeemed, Jesus is saying he ain't doing it. I'm the first and the last, no matter what you're going through. Understand this. Jesus is sovereign over all of it. The the principal of the school, if you will, and this proctor who is trying to get you to fail, he won't be able to do that. Be faithful. Just be faithful because I've, I've got all of this under control. The first and the last. Then he says that He died and came to life. As you look at the end of this letter, the promise is the crown of life to those who are faithful, and they will never experience the second death. The second death we read about in the very last two chapters, three chapters of Revelation, and that is hell. Hell is where body and soul is cast into. Even death and Hades will be cast into hell. And they are different. Hades is where the ungodly go to in what's commonly called the intermediate state between when they die and Jesus returns and all things are made new. They go to this place called Hades. This is where the rich man in Jesus' story of the rich man and Lazarus, that's where he is. That's where his spirit is. His body is where? It has died, death, it's in the grave. His spirit is in Hades. These two, body and spirit, will be cast into hell at the end of the age. That is the second death. That is forever. Church, forever. You will never experience that. And so Jesus says, I died but I was raised to life and thereby he has the power and the authority to give that life to you so that you will never experience that eternal punishment. Never ever. He offers you life. Now I'm going to come back to that in, in concluding at the very end. So these two symbols, that Jesus is the first and the last, that he died and he rose again, Remember when I, as we go through these first five chapters of Revelation, and, and the Lord hasn't shown me to go any further, but just these first five chapters, and I've entitled it Unveiling Jesus, because the very first word in Revelation is apocalypsis, which does not mean apocalypse. It just, it doesn't. Our word apocalypse comes from that word only because the time in which Jesus is revealed, it's used that way, I believe it's three or four times in the New Testament, that does refer to his second coming. But it's used in other places in which it's, 
Paul, for example, for three years was taught directly by Jesus and Jesus revealed himself to him. So this revelation is, is best understood as an unveiling or a revealing of Jesus and not the apocalypse of Jesus. And I would suggest that the vast majority of revelation is not apocalyptic in nature. It is revealing Jesus. Now, there are passages that do refer to the end of the age. And as I said, many in our day see about this much of revelation referring to the apocalypse. And I would say it's probably closer to about this much. So as we read through this, if we could just have out of our mind this concept of the apocalypse and instead what apocalypsis really means the unveiling or the revealing of Jesus, I think we're going to be better off. Jesus is revealing himself in this letter, church. He is revealing himself as the first and the last. He's revealing himself as the one who died and rose from the dead. And these are meant to encourage us. So let's see how that can happen as Jesus is unveiled here. He says that you have, you're enduring afflictions and poverty. This word afflictions literally means pressing or pressure. But it's never used literally in the New Testament, and it's used a number of times. Um, and it's only rarely used as physical pressing or physical pressure outside of the New Testament in Greek. So this word is used with that understanding that it means pressing or pressure, but figuratively it means oppression. When you're going through oppression, you're not being physically pressed in like in a wine press, though that's what Gethsemane means. In a figurative way, that is what Jesus went through. In this literal wine press, Jesus was being oppressed. Jesus was being challenged by the enemy. The scripture actually says that he felt as if he was on the verge of death. That is, for, for the God-man to realize the extent of the cross, which was far more, far more than a physical pressing or affliction, it was spiritual. Jesus, the perfect God-man, was about to take your sins, all of them, my friend, all of them upon himself, including all the guilt you feel, including all of the shame and the spiritual nakedness that you feel before God, who is holy, holy, holy. Jesus took that upon himself. That's why he lasted only six hours on the cross. Most criminals can last up to three days on a cross. To get it over with, they break their legs so they cannot push up to catch a breath and they eventually hang, collapse their lungs and they suffocate. Jesus within six hours. He didn't need his legs broken. He was already dead. I don't want to get off track here except to say this affliction, this pressing in about us, this oppression was so evident in that early church. They also were considered poor, which is a physical lack of wealth. I, I want you to see something in Hebrews chapter 10. 
And in Hebrews chapter 10, 32 to 34, the author of Hebrews, by the way, his goal in his book is to encourage people just like the Smyrnans, Smyrnians, Smyrnavites, the people who live in Smyrna. They are going through such trial in Smyrna, and these Hebrews are as well. And this book is saying, be faithful, persevere. That's the tone of the entire letter. Here's what he says here, chapter 10, verse 32. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light, after you were converted, you got the gospel and you were changed, you were transformed by it as a result. When you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering, sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully church, joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. And may I say, in view of this pressing in about us in this ideology called socialism, don't think that the confiscation of your property is too far in the future. It may be just around the corner. We don't know. That is the nature of socialism. You don't own anything. It's taken from you, and you are then redistributed. You receive only what the state allows you. This is an unbiblical concept, but I just want you to know in, in Rome, they didn't do it because they were socialists or communists. They did it because they wanted to oppress Christians because Satan was in charge of the persecution, the test. These people were tested in, in the book of Hebrews. They were tested. When a test is given, there is always a reason. Satan's goal is to test you, and in that test, have you failed. That's his goal. He wants you to fail. He wants you to get a big old fat red F on that paper of yours, if I can word it that way. The truth, though, is Jesus is the first and the last. Even though you are going through whatever discouragement or trial or test you're going through, Satan's goal is to pull you from Jesus, to get your eyes off of him. And Jesus' goal is something that is beautiful, the first and the last. And so he says, hang on. Be faithful. I've got something so good in store for you. Why? Because these tests are discovering something in here. The tests you took in school wanted to discover something in here. And sometimes, okay, guys, you had it up here. You just didn't know how to put it down here. And some of you weren't really good test takers. So praise God. This is not about what you know, but oh, careful. I need to be careful here. It, it kind of is. Because what goes on in here has got to be rooted in the truth that we know here. Does that make sense? The truth of who Jesus is. The truth that he died and he rose again. See, these types of truths we cannot abandon. They are going to be the, the foundation of us going through this test. And that test will test what's going, what's going on in here. 
can I ask you, and I think I asked this question last week, I'm going to ask it again, why do you follow Jesus? Because I'm going to tell you, when you're tested, you're going to start finding out why you follow Jesus. So when you're tested and your property is confiscated, if you hold to any form of name it and claim it that is so popularized in America today, of course it's America because we're a wealthy nation. Try to get that doctrine taking root in some of these poor countries. Yeah, you're only really godly. You can tell you're only really godly when you're so blessed with, where is that in God's word? You are poor, he says, but you're rich. Wow. So how does he test your heart? Try taking away your property. The property, the house, the cars. You remember the depression that hit in the 30s? All of your stocks, gone. Everything that you have in savings, gone. The retirement that you've been so faithful, I'm five years away. Well, I'm 60 years old, okay? Technically, at 65, you retire. What if all of that is gone? How do you how does your heart respond? Wow, Jesus, I thought you were for me. I thought you were on my side. Why would you let the devil do this? Okay, so maybe it's not about the property. Maybe it's about someone that you really love. Ouch. Yeah, I went there. Now that can be really hard. Do you walk away? You say, God, I just can't believe that you betrayed me. Here's the only thing I can find, guys. He says that you joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. Wow. You didn't get in God's grill. You didn't say, God, I can't believe that you are so against me that you would allow. This is everything that I've worked for my entire life, and I'm getting ready to retire, and it's all gone? How dare you, God? So I want to ask you, why do you follow Jesus? If you lost everything in your life, I'm going to do it again, including those closest to you. Hmm. Do you still want to follow Jesus? That's the challenge here. Satan is going to test you. He's going to sift you as wheat. Jesus told Peter, Satan, he's asked. Jesus, uh, excuse me, Satan, it was like his last ditch effort before he got disbarred. We read about in Revelation 12 how how Satan got disbarred. But before he was hurled to the earth, no longer able to appeal before the Father, he asked God, can I sift Peter? No, let me just do it. I, I want, uh, man, I, I, I think I can get him to turn. You already gave me permission for Judas. We all know what happened with Judas. Let, let me do it with Peter. Come on, come on, God. I, I'm kind of playing with you. I don't know exactly what took place there, but Satan asked God to sift Peter as wheat. Peter stood the test. Peter 
though he ran, though he denied Jesus three times, he did not fully deny him. That's actually a slightly different Greek word, believe it or not. He went outside and he wept bitterly. See, Judas didn't do that. But Peter did. And he was so convicted of what he had done. Felt so insignificant. Felt like he had so betrayed the Savior of the world. He remained faithful, though. He stood the test. Last chapter in Gospel of John, three times, even as he denied Jesus three times, now three times, Jesus says, Simon, do you love me? And each time Simon Peter said, yes, Lord. Three denials, three confessions. I am following only you. See, that is the heart of faithfulness. I am following Jesus. No matter what, no matter what I lose, no matter what the devil chooses to take away from me, even my own health, even my own children, God forbid. Wow, I will remain faithful to you, Jesus. And, and this, is, this is where he's going with this. You see, prison and persecution Await them. See, I'm, I'm looking at my time here and just judging what I can keep and what I'm going to probably have to discard here. Prison and persecution await them. And he says it's going to happen for 10 days. This trial, this test, this affliction, this suffering that you're about to go through, that Satan is proctoring, and Satan is now going to put you in prison, he's going to do it for 10 days. Let me just tell you something about numbers in Revelation. Not the book of numbers. I'm talking about numbers in general in the book of Revelation. They fall into one of three categories. They are either purely literal, as in Revelation 17, I believe it is, when he is talking about the seven heads of the beast, he says they represent seven kings. Five have fallen, one is now, and one is yet to come. Five are now. Let me just say those are a literal five kings. Five kings, five emperors, five rulers, whatever, five. The number five, and, and you can look on the internet, but the number five has no symbolic meaning. Now, if you go on the internet, they're going to they're gonna disagree with what I just said. But I'm not alone. Many would say there's no symbolic meaning in the number of five. He's not trying to say something with that number five. That is purely a literal number. Some numbers in Revelation are purely literal. Some of them are purely symbolic. The name of the beast is 666. Can I encourage you with this? If you take this literally, this concept of the name of the beast and the mark literally on the hand and on the forehead, then can I just say it is not going to be a literal 666. So during the Roman Empire, what would that number look like? It's not going to be a... Anyway, the, the truth is, it's not a literal number. It, that's, that's his name. 
Whatever that means, I'm not going to get into that. That's just his name. It is purely symbolic. It is not a literal 666, regardless of what Chick Tracks or anyone else says or has in their little booklets or in their movies, 666. We know that that is symbolic. When the 10 kings yield their authority to the beast, whatever that would look like, they do it for only one hour. Do you really think that it's going to happen for a literal one hour and that's it? Well, of course not. See, that is completely symbolic. Now, the third category, and this is a hard one, it is they are to be taken literal, but they are also to be taken symbolic. And many numbers in the book of Revelation, including the number three and a half. I'm not going to say any more than that. But they are both literal, but they are symbolic. Now, I believe three and a half is strictly symbolic. I shouldn't have brought that one up, though. Seven churches. Do you really think that even though there are seven literal letters, that they are simply for those seven churches? See, the number seven has symbolic meaning. So what is my point in all of this? It is very possible that this number 10 is either strictly symbolic or it may be both. It's just hard for me to imagine, and, and, and I could be wrong on this, but it's hard for me to imagine, hey, guys, be really careful because the devil's going to throw you in prison. And you're thinking, oh, my goodness, how many months or years am I going to be in prison? And I better get my house in order. And, oh, my goodness, what's, gonna, how, what's that going to be like? It's for 10 days. Oh, whew. okay, that's not bad. I can deal with 10 days. See, I'm not sure that he's meaning this to be a literal 10 days. But see, the number 10, anywhere in the scriptures, it, it's, it is symbolic of completedness. You see, you are going to complete this test and succeed if you are faithful. And so he's trying to encourage them with this 10. Jesus is sovereign. As you go through these persecutions, he is totally in control, first and last. But can I just challenge us? Because this is where the challenge lays. We have, Jesus has revealed himself, okay? All he asks is, be faithful. Be faithful. Now, we looked at this concept of faithfulness, though the word's not found in that letter to the Ephesians. We, we, we kind of hear a little bit of that concept of faithfulness. They were faithful. The Ephesians were faithful, but can I ask you, why were they faithful? Faithfulness, the, the, the question that's it's wrapped up in there is what is our motivation? Why are you faithful? When I was a kid, I, I was super into sports. My dad was as well. He loved to watch Wide World of Sports. Get, anybody remember that show, Wide World of Sports? Okay, you're dating yourselves now. Yes, okay. All right, I'm 60. I, I was like 10 years old, 12 years old. I loved watching Wide World of Sports Sunday after. Agony of defeat. Yeah, and the skier falls off and he's twirling around. He falls off that slope. Whoo, 
like a helicopter blade. Yeah, that, that's, that's it. You got it. But as soon as I would watch that, I was like, man, I'm going to go out and I'm going to run my miles. And I would run six, eight, ten. And there were some times in which I was supposed to run 15 miles. I ran my 15 miles, believe it or not. Okay? And I was motivated. And and I'm just going to say this. Many times when, like January 1st, and we're setting New Year's resolutions, it starts off with a desire. I'm going to go on a diet. I'm going to start exercising. I'm going to start visiting my YMCA. I'm going to start swimming, whatever it is, right? Or I've got 20,000 projects around my house. I'm going to list them all, and then I'm going to tackle every single one of them, one a week. So guess how long that will take. But I'm going to do it, right? And so we have this desire. I'm motivated, right? But how long does that motivation last for you? By January 31st, you've already lost that resolution sheet. Can't find it. Oh, well, you accidentally threw it away, right? Isn't that the way it works? And yeah, we're just not that motivated anymore. To do those, we have to move from desire to duty or discipline. All right. Yeah, that's fine. Sometimes in life, you don't want to go to work on Monday mornings. For some of you, it's like every Monday morning. Regardless, you do it because you're being faithful. You are duty-driven. D-U-T-Y, duty-driven. Okay, do that for a couple of years. And you still wake up Monday morning. You may find yourself wanting to just, I'm, I'm giving them my two-week notice. I'm tired of this because I don't like it but you do it because you're duty-driven. Many Christians, just like the Ephesians, they live, they camp out in duty. Now, again, duty is important. There are times in which we just don't feel like pursuing God, but we do it anyway. And we just say, God, right now, emotionally, it's not in me. But I will take this step of faith, and it's amazing, church. When we do that, even though it's duty-driven, God's grace is sufficient, okay? And he will strengthen us. He is, the, the, the Ephesians are challenged to move to a third level because they have camped out in duty for so long, discipline for so long, that they have lost that passion and that love for Jesus. It's just all about doing the job. It's just all about acting like a Christian. And there are so many in our day today, that's where they live. That is the sum total of their Christianity. It's a lot of rules. It doesn't flow from a love for God. If you were to ask them, the right answer is, of course it is. Because that's the right answer. I'm sure the Ephesians, yep, right answer is, see, I've got the truth here. And Jesus is saying, no, I'm needing it here. Why do you follow me? And we need to move from desire to duty and from duty to delight. He is asking these people who live in Smyrna, whatever you want to call them. He's saying, guys, 
be faithful. Let that faithfulness be delight-driven. But be faithful. Hang on to me. Never forsake him, even to the point of death. And some of you, you, maybe not physical death, but you feel like you are dying inside, but choose him, follow him. I'm I'm just going to encourage you, if you are locked into that being disciplined or duty-driven, ask God to fill your heart again with this delight. And in Psalm 1, it says, this blessed man, his delight, not his duty, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law, he meditates day and night. See, like, as I read the word, I don't just get up at whatever early hour in the morning and spend however much time in the word because I'm duty-driven, but because I'm finding a delight. I'm seeing there's life in this, and in my relationship with Jesus, I'm following you, Jesus, not just because I feel like I've got this ball and chain, and yep, I am a slave to righteousness. Well, that's not what it means. I, I, there's a, there, I, I am filled with a love for you, Jesus, and you've captivated my heart, not just my mind, not just because I can give the right answers, because this is not a testing of the mind, it's a testing of the heart. Where's your heart? See, I am being filled with delight. I am being delight, I am delighting myself in the things of the Lord. Let's learn our lesson from this letter to the Ephesians who did get that right. Because if we don't, the challenge is the same. Repent and just go back. Do you remember that first love that you had for Jesus? All that you did during that time? That's where I want you. That's where I want you to live like this childlike love. Enough with the, uh, you know what, once you've, once you've been around the block a few times, you know how hard life is, we'll see how passionate you are for Jesus. Yeah, see, that is a lie from Satan. And us in the older generation, yeah, we're being faithful and we are duty-driven many times. Well, wait a second. Those who just have come to Christ in their passion and zeal for Jesus and, and they truly love him, they got it, church. Maybe us old people, and by old, I mean apparently 61 and older, right? Because that's certainly not me, right? But those of us who are older, we need to, we need to sometimes just go back. What did you do in the beginning? What did you do? Oh, man. There were times in which I would wake up at 3 in the morning. I just wanted to spend time with Jesus. What, do you do that anymore? Another story. But see, it's not. That is what he's getting at. So let's learn the lesson from the letter to the Ephesians. And when we're being faithful to the point of death, it is to be delight-driven. It is to be delighting in Jesus as my Savior, my God, the one who rescued me from my sins. He didn't just wash them away. Hallelujah but he rescued me from them. He actually has now given me power to live in a way that is not like that that I used to live in. That's the old Mike Curtis. 
I have now been empowered to live a different life. For it is not I who lives, but Christ in me, right? And, and, and God, you know what, if, if, if this Christian life is just all about, well, that's what I'm supposed to do. That's what good Christians do. Duty, duty, duty. I am not opposed to duty. I want to be faithful in that way. It's just that the duty, the, the faithfulness that he's called us to, it just has to go beyond that. Otherwise, you're going to burn out. It must be delight-driven. Church, delight yourself in the Lord. Taste and see that he is good. As hard as life is, is that your mantra? Life, you know, if there's just one thing I want to relay to this next generation coming up, it's just that life is hard. Well, thanks a lot for pretty much nothing. Because I already knew that. Yeah, you want to get married? Well, let me tell you the backside of that one. What? Man, you're going to have a lot of people running to the altar to get married with that bit of advice. They say that infatuation blinds you. Good thing, right? No. The truth is that Jesus has invited husband and wife to learn how to love one another even when we hurt each other. You don't just wake up one day, you know what, I'm just tired of my spouse hurting me. I'm getting out of here. That's what many Christians, just like the world, that's what they're doing. Can you learn to delight in your spouse, even when it's hard? Even when you disagree with them? I tell you, you know that they're wrong. Come on. They're, they're just wrong, church, right? I love that one little bit of advice that the man, older man gives to the young man getting married. Just remember, buddy, she's always right. <laughs> well, that might be good, but the truth is, so many of us, we, we're going through life in our marriage. And you can see the symbolism here, I hope. In our marriage, we are just saying, I'm so weary of this. I'm so tired of what he does. Like It's like every day or what she does. I'm wearied by it. Enough of this duty, I'm getting out of here. I believe Jesus wants you to embrace delight. And there's a way to do that. Now, this isn't a marriage seminar, but this is a seminar on your marriage to Jesus and your love for him. And I want to call you back to that because you you're not going to be able to be faithful. You, you can't live in this letter written to Smyrna if you haven't gotten the first one right. Repent and do the things you did at first. So, I want to leave you with this. If you are faithful, even to the point of death, Jesus, who's the first and the last, the one who died and rose from the dead, he's going to give you the crown of life. Life. Now, in a sense, we have this life. It's already in us. He who believes has everlasting life. You have this life. It's in you already. It's just in a vessel of clay. It is simply in this fallen creature. But one day, one day that fallen creature is going to be made new again. And those desires 
to stand for my rights. You know, maybe the trackway to delight in your marriage is to die to some of those rights, okay? Maybe, right? Jesus is basically saying this. I want to give you in the future, if you should you overcome to him who overcomes and remains faithful and empowered daily by my grace, I'm going to give to him this crown of life. Now, I'm not convinced that it is a literal crown, though in a symbolic gesture, we find out in chapter four that the elders take their crowns and cast them before the throne. Regardless of where you stand on that, if it's literal and symbolic, at least it is symbolic, okay? I think we can all agree on that. And this, this is the Stephanos crown. The Stephanos is different than the king's crown. The Stephanos is that wreath that is the victor's wreath. It's given to anyone who wins, who overcomes. That crown of life is yours. Everything you do in this life, even if it just boils down to faithfulness, everything points to that. Everything, the short number of days that we live on this earth, it all points to then. My life now needs to count for then. Why would I abandon my first love? Why would I forsake it? Why would I want to turn from Jesus? He's everything to me. Why would I forfeit that crown? Follow, be faithful, because I will give you that crown, and you will wear that crown forever and ever and ever. Why would I take, in these 10 days, and turn my back on Jesus and walk away and have nothing to do with him? for the rest of my life, to sacrifice that crown that lasts forever. So church, I want to leave you with this. Jesus is inviting you to truly embrace life. You see that you are poor, but you are really rich. Truly rich. And if your relationship with Jesus is rooted in that delight in him and allow it to constantly be stirred up. I don't care if your property is confiscated. There will be joy in your joyfully accepting the confiscation of your property. That is the heart of these types of people who are faithful. Man, I want that to be in my heart. Be encouraged today. No matter what test the devil throws at you, be rooted and grounded. Stay your ground faithful in Jesus, delight-driven, following after him. He truly is your highest love, and that is your first love. Follow him. You will never, ever regret it. Wow, would I hate to live the rest of eternity thinking about those regrets. Now, praise God, I'm not going to, but I don't want to live even the rest of my days with regrets. It's, it's all out for Jesus. That is my goal. Let's be faithful, even to the point of death. Amen, church? Even to the point of death. Can you imagine dying for Jesus? Maybe that's the cutoff point for some of us. Nope. 
Now, if it's going to mean death, now the, the deal is off the table, Jesus. I'm not following you for that. Would you be? Can you stand with me? Let's pray. If we could have the lights. And, I, and my heart, and I hope you have heard my heart, I believe this passage is a word of challenge but encouragement. Can you receive that encouragement this morning, Powerline? Father, I, I ask you, as your spirit has been speaking to our hearts this morning, maybe highlighting some things you're wanting us to deal with, maybe reminding us again of certain truths that we've kind of forgotten. And we're now blowing the dust off those truths and we're embracing them again. I just ask, encourage our hearts. Lead us in this way of being faithful. Jesus, you endured the cross now not out of duty, but you did it out of delight. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Set that joy before us, Jesus. That delight in you. Set it before us constantly. And help us to be faithful, even to the point of death. Thank you, Father. Jesus, as you are sovereignly overseeing all of these things in our life, you are the faithful one. Help us today to be faithful. And if we need to move from duty to delight, help us do this, God. Remind us, Father, of these amazing truths and your love for us. The fact that you are holy, 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 that you are the sovereign, all-powerful, all-good God. Whatever we need to be reminded of, draw us into this passionate, faith-filled relationship again with you. Please, Jesus. You are so good. So faithful. Do this in our hearts today, God, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask.